Turn again in your Bibles, that passage we read, to Habakkuk, to chapter 3. There are some tension and words at the beginning of the chapter. A prayer of Habakkuk the prophet upon Shigiono. O Lord, I have heard thy speech and was afraid. O Lord, revive thy work in the midst of the years. In the midst of the years, make known in wrath. Remember mercy. Habakkuk is maybe a book of the Bible that not everyone is very familiar with. But all of the Lord's people are familiar with the cries, the prayers that are made by Habakkuk. There is a prayer at the beginning of chapter 1. And it is in essence this. Why have you not heard me? And then when the Lord answers Habakkuk and tells him that he has heard and that he is at work, that he is addressing sin and rebellion and folly, and he's bringing the Chaldean nation, the Babylonians, to chastise his covenant people. There is a second prayer which is made by Habakkuk. And you find that at the beginning of verse, or in verse, from verse 12. Chapter 1. So where is God in all of this? Why have you not heard me? And why are you doing this? Where is God in all of this? The prophet is crying out. Confessing the sin of the people. And seeking deliverance that the Lord would pardon and cleanse and purify. And he has cried out and he has cried out and he has cried out. And eventually he cries out and he says, why do you not hear me? Why do you not do anything about it? Instead of deliverance, he sees more and more oppression. And then the Lord speaks. And the Lord speaks and declares his purpose that he will do something, that he is active in doing something, that he's raising up the Chaldean nation, hitherto insignificant, unknown, to come and to trample down, that he won't deliver them from the Chaldean. He won't deliver his covenant people from them, but rather he will deliver them to them. And of course, it's not what the prophet anticipated. And isn't that what's perplexing today? As we cry out to the Lord for deliverance, and we cry out for his mercy, and we pray for a reviving, and an advancing of his cause, a restraining of wickedness. A bringing down of the godless, and instead we see the godless being raised up increasingly. It's not what we have sought. It's not what we want. And it seems that everything is wrong. 
It's not the Chaldeans today, is it? It's the so-called liberals. There they are in politics and in media, in education, entertainment and industry, and in the church. They're called liberal, but they're anything but liberal because of an aggressive intolerance, isn't it? Of a Babylonian ferocity, they destroy with utter contempt for anything. Anything to do with God, with utter contempt for truth. So there's a refusal to acknowledge the difference between a man and a woman. Making merchandise of the souls of men. And one of the things that's so grievous is this, is it not, that that mentality is so seductively packaged that increasingly we see people being sucked in by it, even within our own homes and our own families. Those are brought up under the sound of the gospel, allured, ensnared. Why does God not hear us? And why does God do this? Why, where is God to be found in this? Chapter 2 speaks about the imperative of faith. The necessity of living by faith, of trusting in God. And the Lord speaks in chapter 2 and he answers and he says that he will judge the wicked in his time. But first, that the wicked will be used as an instrument in his hand. He will use the wicked as an instrument in his hand to chastise his covenant people. That may be the answer to our prayer for an explanation to what we see. The Lord will chastise. He will bring us low and humble us. He will deal with our sin, even in such a way as this. You know, the Babylonians came they trampled upon the nation. They destroyed the nation. They destroyed Jerusalem. They destroyed the temple and everything that was in it. They took them captive. They came again and again, and they took anything and everyone that was of worth and left only the broken, the desolate, empty. Shows something of the outrage that sin is, isn't it? The sin, particularly of the Lord's own people. All sin is an outrage against God. And all sin will be judged. All sin will be dealt with. And sometimes we have a scale and we measure sin accordingly, and there's that which is outrageous, and there's that which, well, it's it's sin and it's not good. But it's not outrageous. I wonder if there's a danger that we use that measurement all wrong. 
that what perhaps is most outrageous is what we might not consider to be the most outrageous. It's the sin of the Lord's own people. Boldness, compromise, hypocrisy, that outward veneer of respectability, of the extravagance of the godless, the heathen of the ignorant, the subtle wickedness, those who do not follow the ways of God with all their heart. In this short prophecy, there's three prayers. Three prayers and two answers. It's the first prayer and the first answer. The second prayer and the second answer. And in the third prayer. And that's what we read in chapter three, the third prayer. And you maybe want to ask, why is that prayer not answered? There's an answer given to the first, an answer given to the second. Why isn't there then a response to this third prayer? We can't look at it all this evening, but I want to look at the beginning. particularly in verse 2, but it's important to note that this prayer is set out in a particular form, different from the others. It's set out as a composition. It's introduced a prayer of Habakkuk the prophet upon Shigiono. That word Shigiono is used in the beginning of Psalm 7. It's the only other place in Scripture that's used it seems the root of it is, means to reel, to stagger. It suggests an overwhelming emotion. For that introduction, and in the postscript at the end, which speaks about the chief singer upon the stringed instruments, and then the use of the word selah through the text, shows that this prayer has been set out as a composition for the people of God to use in worship. You must be slow about saying this was an unanswered prayer and thinking, therefore, it's not so significant because there's an emphasis upon it. For the priests to use as they led the people in the worship of God. I want for us to look particularly at verse 2. O Lord, I've heard thy speech and was afraid. O Lord, revive thy work in the midst of the years. In the midst of the years, make known. In wrath, remember mercy. The prophet, as he cries out, recognizes, first of all, that the Lord will sanctify his people. O Lord, I've heard thy speech and was afraid. These are words of submission. Too often, prayer can be a setting of ourselves against God. We have in our minds how providence should work out. And we bring that before the Lord. And we set our hearts upon it. 
and we insist upon it. And we can find ourselves, as it were, wrestling and striving with the Lord, seeking to impose our will. But here, there is a submission to what the Lord has revealed. That his people will be sanctified through chastisement. The end of chapter 2. We're told that the whole earth is to keep silence before the Lord who is in his holy temple. The prophet's subsequent praying this third time is not a failure to keep silent, but rather he is not striving against the Lord. He is not complaining. These are appropriate words as he quietens himself in the presence of a holy God. It's not what we need to do to quieten ourselves before the Lord, knowing that he will sanctify his people. His uncompromising holiness. He's not abandoned his church, but he will awaken his church. He will not forsake. He will not abandon you will not leave us as you were. And the same thing in Chronicles and Second Chronicles chapter 12 is speaking of Rehoboam, the son of Solomon, and in reference to Shishak, who is the ruler of Egypt, it says that there Rehoboam shall be his servants, Shishak, that they might know my servants. The Lord is saying that Rehoboam will be given to serve Shishak. He will have the humiliation and the shame and the sorrow of that so that he might learn the service of the Lord. You see, the Lord will sanctify his people that we might learn to love him. And if you're a parent, you know something of that because. That's sometimes what parents do, isn't it? They say, okay, you can have it your own way. We'll do it your way. And if your parents say that, then it's a sure sign that your way is not the best way. And you probably shouldn't have insisted upon it. But because you were so insistent upon it, you're going to be allowed to see, to experience, to feel it. Because you haven't taken a telling. And you must find out some other way. And for a little time, maybe you're allowed to have it your way. The Lord's people have not been diligent in pursuing after the Lord. And so they will learn the hard service of being apart from the Lord. That they might learn to love him. Well, Lord, I've heard thy speech and was afraid. Because he understood what that would entail. And the sorrow that sin and rebellion had brought. It's not that God has forgotten his gracious promises, but it's because we too quickly forget his gracious promises. That's why. You know, the Lord's covenant faithfulness sometimes looks like and feels like covenant unfaithfulness. 
That's because we don't properly understand the covenant. Don't properly understand that sin must be dealt with. And the greatest example and illustration of that is surely the cross upon Calvary and the death of our blessed Lord and his body laid in the tomb and a guard set upon that tomb. And the desolation of that final Old Testament Sabbath for those who loved him, for the wicked the wicked rejoice at his death and removal. It looked like covenant unfaithfulness, didn't it? Like the covenant had been broken, failed. But of course it hadn't failed and it hadn't been broken. But rather what was happening there was a fulfillment of the covenant. The covenant of grace. That there would be a bruising of the seed the woman, the seed of the woman would bruise the head of the serpent. This is the way of the cross. So the Apostle Paul cries out, I die daily. That was his experience. He brought to an end of himself daily. The Lord will Sanctify his people. Hebrews chapter 12 and verse 6. Whom the Lord loveth, he chasteneth, and scourgeth every son whom he receiveth. It's not covenant failure, is it? It's God's strong love. And therefore, we're not to strive against them, but to take comfort in that. Even though we may find ourselves overwhelmed. O oh Lord, I've heard thy speech and was afraid. But there's a submission there, isn't there? A submission to his blessed Lord. You know, some read their Bibles only very selectively, only focusing upon upbeat motivational passages. And that's a very incomplete, a dangerous way to read the scriptures. Because ultimately there, you're ruled by your own emotion, by your own heart. If you pursue only what feels good, you neglect so much. You may neglect the Lord himself. We're told that in the final day, there'll be many who with great confidence shall come and say, Lord, Lord, have we not prophesied in thy name and in thy name have cast out devils? And in thy name have done many wonderful works. The Lord says, then I shall profess unto them, I never knew you. Depart from me, ye that work iniquity. They were not known. They were strangers. They were never nurtured. They were never chastised. They were never sanctified. They made their own way. Friends, they were not sanctified. They were not saved. Lord, I heard thy speech and was afraid. The Lord will sanctify his people. But there's more here, isn't there? Because the prophet also recognizes that the Lord will strengthen his people. Lord, I heard thy speech and was afraid. 
O Lord, revive thy work in the midst of the years. In the midst of the years, make known in wrath. Remember mercy. Revive thy work in the midst of the years. There's a cry that the Lord, though he would sanctify, that though he would humble and bring us low, though he would chasten us because of our sin, that he would strengthen us through that. Revive means to uphold. It means to keep me alive. For if you do not keep me alive, O Lord, I cannot endure. Psalm 94, verse 7, unless the Lord, 17 rather, unless the Lord had been my help, my soul had almost dwelt in silence. Unless the Lord had been my help, I would have died. But the Lord has been my help, says the psalmist. The Lord has strengthened me. There's a use here of the covenant name. O Lord, I heard thy speech and was afraid. O Lord, revive thy work in the midst of the year. That the Lord, who is faithful to chastise and to sanctify, would be the one who would be faithful to strengthen, that we might endure in the midst of the years make knowing. Oh, there's deliverance. There's ultimate deliverance, isn't there? And we know that and we rejoice that there is glory in the end and we shall be saved. But this, in the midst of the years, is a plea that we might know the strengthening and the reviving of the Lord now, that he might preserve us from day to day, from moment to moment. Remember in Pilgrim's Progress how Christian is taken to interpreter's house. And he sees different things there. And one of the things he sees is a fire. And there's a fire burning in the fireplace. And there's water being poured upon it. The fire doesn't go out. Of course, that's puzzling. Because if you pour water in a fire, it ought to go out. But then he's taken behind. And he's shown that there's oil being poured on the fire. And that's why it doesn't go out. Because there's a strengthening. It's a secret working of the Spirit of God. That's the experience, isn't it, of the Lord's people? He graciously strengthens, even though there's trials. And many of these trials come upon us because of our sin, but yet He is gracious to strengthen and to uphold. But maybe you want to ask the question and say, well, the Lord strengthens us to uphold us through the trials that he sends. Why not just not send a trial? Why not just stop it being dampening, dampened down? And change the image slightly. I remember I was being fascinated by the way my mother would set a fire. Everything had to be dry, dry paper, dry sticks. Everything was dry. The fire was set, and then she would always strike. It was just one match. The fire would take. And it would grow quickly, and the flames were tall, and you'd feel heat, and it was tremendous. And then she would bring a shovel of damp dross. And it always seemed so wrong. Why would you put damp dross upon a fire that's just building up? And the heat, you're starting to feel it, and suddenly there's damp dross put upon this fire. And it, 
almost extinguishes it. Then after a little time, the fire had built up in intensity. It would break through the crust of dross. There was a great heat. Why does the Lord strengthen and yet allow a dampening down? Is that maybe a building of an intensity of a heat of a heart? That's what the prophet's crying out for. Not that the Lord will take away the trial because the trial has been sent, because he is chastening them because of their sin, but that the Lord would sustain them through that. And that in sustaining them through that, there might be a burning within. The Lord revive thy work. Don't say revive me. It means me. Doesn't say revive us. He means us. He says, revive thy work. Because we are thine. And your own glory is bound up in this. It's not a wonderful argument to bring before the Lord. Revive thy work in the midst of the years. In the midst of the years, make known. May we experience it. Oh, the just shall live by faith. We must walk by faith. It's our confidence in the Lord, regardless of our emotions and our feelings. But don't you have that desire to feel? In the midst of the years, make known. Psalm 27, verse 13. I had fainted. Unless I had believed to see the goodness of the Lord in the land of the living. I couldn't have kept going. But I had confidence that God would show me his goodness now. Wait on the Lord. And be of good courage. And he shall strengthen thine heart. Wait, I say, on the Lord. And waiting's not passive, is it? So pursuing it's a calling upon. It's a submitting unto. It's a depending upon. Psalm 85. Will thou not revive us again, that thy people may rejoice in thee? The Lord will sanctify his people. I've heard thy speech and I was afraid. The Lord will strengthen his people. O Lord, revive thy work in the midst of the years. In the midst of the years, make known. There's a plea for that strengthening. Be prepared to call upon the Lord to strengthen you tonight. To strengthen you in your experiences. You know, we have no entitlement to ease. And nor is ease good for us. If it was good for us, we would have ease all the time because we're promised that we should receive all that is good. The lion's young may hungry be, and they may lack their food. But they that truly seek the Lord shall not lack any good. And therefore, if ease was good for us, ease would be our experience. But ease isn't our experience because ease isn't good for us. And yet we find ourselves overwhelmed. Why? We might cast ourselves upon the Lord. Praying for that reviving. 
that they might receive of himself. These things, the Lord will sanctify his people. The Lord will strengthen his people. And thirdly, the Lord will save his people. O Lord, I've heard thy speech and was afraid. O Lord, revive thy work in the midst of the years. In the midst of the years, make known in wrath. Remember mercy. Not denying God is angry with sin. God will chasten sin. But to plea that God will remember mercy. Mercy is not just a concept. It's not just a thing. Mercy has shape. His mercy took shape at the incarnation. The plea that the Lord and in chasing his people would remember his own dear son. The one who was given from Habakkuk's perspective, who was to come. Remember mercy. Will the Lord remember mercy? Of course the Lord will remember mercy. Because the one who laid down his life and lay in the grave, rose again from the grave and ascended up into glory. And today sits at the right hand of the throne of God. And there he ever lives to make intercession for us. And wrath, remember mercy. There's a confidence here, isn't there? That the Lord will save his people. That his mercy, his mercy is great. The continual refrain of Psalm 136, every of each of the 26 verses, his mercy endureth forever. His mercy endureth forever. Micah, who is a God like unto thee that pardoneth iniquity, he retaineth not his anger forever because he delighted in mercy. There's no other plea. No other plea that can be made. There's no other plea that we, we desire to make. That God would remember mercy. We face perplexing, a perplexing providence situation as you look out. The godless abound. The Lord is faithful. We will not abandon his cause. He will awaken his cause. His love is a strong love, not that superficial love of the indulgent parent who gives everything that the child asks for, the way the child wants it and spoils the child. But it's a strong love of a father who loves with a perfect love and is working what is good. We're impatient for all the troubles and trials to be taken away. So often we fear that we're fighting a losing battle. But we're not losing. 
because what you see is you hear the cry of the prophet, this third prayer that the prophet makes. It goes on from here. He prays that the Lord would remember mercy. But even as he asked that the Lord would remember mercy, he himself is brought to consider the mercy of God. And in the verses that follow, he describes the covenant mercy of God. And he describes and he recognizes, he sees something of the appearing of God. The Lord Jesus Christ, the one who will come. Solve the image of the Old Testament, particularly of the Exodus. He speaks about where the Lord will appear in covenant with his people, how the Lord will appear in glory, in the glory of his own person, which we see fulfilled in the incarnation, and how or why the Lord appears, which is to save his people by crushing the head of his enemies. And so the prophet concludes with a contentment to wait upon God. And even though he would not experience all the covenant blessings that were anticipated in the short term. That's what's described at the end, isn't it? The fig tree not blossoming, the fruit not being in the vines. The labor of the olive shall fail, the field shall yield no free meat. The flock shall be cut off in the fold, there shall be no herd or stalls. All the covenant blessings. Yet he would rejoice in the Lord because he understood that the Lord would keep some of these things from them in the short term, that they might receive him himself as he is, both now and forever. Content to wait upon the Lord, content to endure all of today's losses. Why? Because he has heard my cry. You see, this prayer is answered in the words of the prayer. Because he's brought into the presence of the Lord. And he sees and he beholds the glory of God. Why haven't you heard me? Where is God in all of this? The Lord is calling us to himself. Depart from our sin. God is working in all of this, friends. In all of the madness, all the wickedness, all of the folly. Let us rejoice in his goodness. Let us live with renewed Zeal, desire to glorify, to rejoice, to rejoice in the, in the midst of it all. O Lord, I've heard thy speech and was afraid. O Lord, revive thy work in the midst of the years, in the midst of the years make known. And wrath, remember mercy. Amen. Let's pray together. Many times, O oh Lord, we are afraid. We're afraid when we think of your uncompromised holiness. We're afraid when we think of our compromised lives. 
We're afraid, our God, as we see the circumstances of providence around us. We praise you that we can come this night with confidence, knowing that you, O Lord, will sanctify your people and that you will strengthen your people. And ultimately, you shall save. Oh, then be our strength and be our song. Enable us, O Lord, not to provoke you to wrath, not to grieve the blessed spirit, but to walk humbly and obediently before you. Cause that your word would have a resting place in our hearts. Cause, O Lord, that fruit would follow from it and that you would be glorified and that good would be done to us. For we ask in Jesus' name and for Jesus' sake. Amen.